Again, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to open the word for you. Uh, you may remember um, what we're covering is, is the book of Zechariah, and we've gone through so far uh, the first uh, six verses, which was a call of repentance, uh, preparing God's people for the message, and then you had uh, eight visions that were there to encourage God's people, although they were in a lowly state. God was with them, and uh, I suggested that the, the two middle visions, uh, four and five, really were the focus, uh, and uh, looked at uh, the priest, and then the, the king, the political leader, and although it's a very difficult time that uh, God was going to use them, but they were also looking forward to somebody greater, a, a priest, a king that would come, that would really fulfill those offices. And of course, they were looking forward to, to Jesus Christ. And as we look here at this next section, as it goes beyond the, the, the visions, it's still pointing us to Jesus Christ. So let's uh, turn our attention to Zechariah 6. We'll be beginning the reading with verse 9 and uh, read on to the end of the chapter. You might say the children, if you want to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of a crown. It mentions a, a crown in these verses. Let's hear the word of God. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedidah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is, is the branch. For he shall branch out from this place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, to Bijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it shall come to pass if you would diligently obey the voice of the Lord, your God. Today, if we write something, uh, we have certain conventions to emphasize a certain idea. We might underline it or put it in bold or italics, change fonts or change colors. Uh, we can put emojis next to it, a thumbs up or thumbs down. 
to emphasize. We could even have uh, comparatives and superlatives. Good, better, best. Great, greater, and greatest. Well, in ancient Hebrew, they didn't have that. They only had two ways of emphasizing an idea. One was by repeating it. And we might translate it very or something like that. Uh, uh, and uh, the most famous is truly, truly. And uh, literally, it's amen, amen. And uh, in Genesis, you come across this battle and it talks about the pits, pits. They're very bad pits. And uh, some of the kings fell into them as they tried to flee away. And if it reached a, a third, which only a couple times it does that, like holy, 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 it's really getting at the idea of it's most holy. It's holiness raised to the third degree, the holiest of all. The second way that they had of emphasizing something in the Hebrew was to put a certain word that called attention to what came after it. And it's that word, behold. Every time you see behold in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, it's saying this next idea is very important. Now, all the ideas of, of Scripture are important, but whenever it's, you find that word behold, this is especially important. Take notice of it. And so, so far, in, uh, as we've gone through Zechariah, that word behold has been used 16 times, calling our attention to the woman in the basket or other things of importance. Did you notice it was used here? In this passage as well, it's there in verse 12. And what are we to take notice of? What's the most important thing in these verses? Behold the branch. And so we're to be looking at the branch. Behold the man whose name is the branch. And this really continues on the visions that, that look forward to the Messiah and what's going to come. Now it's termed in terms of a message. So it's a message about the branch. There's a rich Old Testament background to that term. There's a uniqueness we'll see to the branch and then the fulfillment of it in prophecy. And so the first point, the context. In contrast to the visions, these are a word of the Lord. And notice that in verse 9, that Lord is all capital letters. That's a, a convention that we have to indicate a specific Hebrew word. Often termed Yahweh or Jehovah. It's a name that was revealed to, to Moses at the burning bush. It's his covenant name. It speaks about the relationship that the God of all the earth has with his people. It communicates the idea that he's a merciful and loving God. And in verse 12, we had the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the one who's all-powerful, this one who's giving these words to 
Zechariah is the one who's in a loving relationship with them, but also is the almighty God. And so what he's, he's seeking to share with his people. Well, we have what is known as a prophetic symbolism. We might say it's an object lesson. The prophet does something that has a deeper meaning. And so we're to look at it, and the people around we're to look at it and say, what's God trying to communicate to us through this? One clear example of that is Ezekiel, where he builds a city. And then a little city in, in, in the dirt. And then siege works around it. And then a hole in the wall. Predicting what would happen in a few years. When Jerusalem was besieged. And as the king tried to flee away at night. Through a hole in the wall. Well here. It's a parable that involves uh, three men from Babylon. Uh, as you look at their names, two of them are, are Jewish names, with that Yah at the end, meaning Yahweh. And so it's likely they're from faithful families, uh, believing families back in, back in Babylon. And they bring with them gold and silver, likely a gift for the, for the temple. It's likely that they've heard that it's being rebuilt, they want to contribute something, and they come great distance and a long journey to contemplate something. And Zechariah is directed to go and take that gold and that silver and to make a crown. And in the Hebrew, that word crown is actually plural. And so there's a question, what does it mean? Because if it was meaning crown, crown, it would imply an ornate crown. An elaborate crown. And I think some of your translations would translate it that way. But it can also mean, and I think it's maybe a little bit more likely, that in the Middle East they often intertwine two crowns. And here one would be silver and the other would be gold. And so he's to take what's been offered and make it into a crown. And that word for crown is the word for a royal crown, a a crown that goes on a king. Now there are other words besides that in the Hebrew for various head coverings and and things that that would be referred to maybe in English as a crown. And what is surprising is you look at the second half of verse 11, what does he do? Who would you put a crown on? You'd think of it in terms of the, the king. But he doesn't put it on the king's head. Whose head does he put it on? He puts it on the high priest. Now, is he trying to breed some sort of rebellion against Zerubbabel? You know, we've already seen that Zerubbabel has been commended. He's been praised back in the fifth vision. He's been given promises that he would be there at the completion of the temple. No, there's something more. 
And it's in the next verse that our attention is drawn to the branch. What is going on with the high priest is looking forward to the branch and who the branch is and what he will do. And so he prophetically symbolizes that one who's coming, who's going to be a ruler as well as the high priest. In verse 12, it says, For he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and will bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. That the high priest is looking forward to a greater high priest. One who's much more than a high priest, who's also ruler over all things. And before we go on, and I'll go on to the second point that talks about the meaning of the branch. This is uh, what's used here is, is often used as a, as a justification for all types of things in worship, for having skits or showing videos, you know, that the, the prophets did all these things that they acted out. And so we can do the same thing in our worship. Let me just note three things. First, like here, none of them is in worship. This is not a worship situation. When Ezekiel built that little village in the sand, it was not a worship service. And so it may be okay to do something like that for vacation Bible school, but we don't see it in worship. Second thing is in the New Testament, we see the pattern for worship. You could look at 1 Corinthians 14 and some other places. And what's the focus? It's not on entertainment, but on the word of God, the preaching of the word. And so Timothy is commanded to preach the word. Paul says he'd rather say five words that communicate than a thousand words in an unknown tongue. And third, the church has been given some symbols. Two specifically. That inspired, that are divine, that are been ordained by God. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we, we want some visual images. We're to look at those and to think about those. Well, the second point is, is Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Zechariah and his friends are called uh, to pay close attention to the branch. It's a term that's full of meaning. It's found frequently in the Old Testament. And Zechariah and his contemporaries would have understood that. Would have probably memorized passages to talk about the, the branch. Let me just give you four. First one is Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, 
Isaiah is looking forward to the time of the Messiah. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Now that word survivors points to the fact that Israel is going to go through a very low time. In Isaiah's day, they're looking forward to the captivity, to the judgments of God against the people. And yet that's not the end of things. There's the branch who will come and who will give hope and encouragement to the ones who survive in their lowliness. They're to be looking for that branch. And that branch will give new life. The word implies branching out, growth, out of what seemed to be dry and dead land will be new life. The second passage is in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, that's that word again, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days... Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We didn't look at the first few verses in that chapter, but it talks there about the unfaithful shepherds who've been leading God's people astray, have been teaching them falsehood and that they will undergo a judgment. But again, that's not the end of the story. Because then when you get to verses 5 and 6, there's this branch who's going to restore the fortunes of Israel. And we can see from the passage that he's in some way related to David, we know that he was his descendant. And with him is salvation and prosperity and security, and most of all, righteousness. He is our righteousness. He's the source of the people's righteousness. We sang from Psalm 72 and talked about the king and desire the king to be righteous. But even the best, the Old Testament kings failed. But it points us to one who would be the righteous king. Who does not fail. Who becomes our righteousness. Third passage is in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 16. Behold, it's that word again, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Judah and to the house of Israel. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, 
and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Same ideas of growth, of security, and of righteousness coming from David's line. And the final passage is, uh, I'll mention is Zechariah 3.8. Part of the fourth vision, it was related to Joshua, the high priest. How he's going to be assigned. He said, behold, and this is the Lord talking, I will bring my servant the branch. The promise here is there's going to be this branch. That what Joshua, as a high priest, uh, in a sense, uh, foreshadowed, would find its fulfillment in the New Testament. Which leads us to our third point, which is the uniqueness of the branch, as you look at verses 12 and 13. There's something special going on. Look at the end of verse 12. For he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, literally, that's not true because we know Zerubbabel was building the temple and he was the one that promised that it would complete it. They'd been, it's a four-year project and they're at least halfway done with it. But there's something more. Something greater than Solomon's temple or the rebuilt temple or the temple of Herod's day, and it's pointed to in, in Haggai 2.9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. In this place, I will give peace. And that's God talking. And those who saw the new temple and it's being laid, the older men wept because it was so inferior to what Solomon's temple was like. But into that new temple would come greater glory. Not because of its size, not because of how much gold and silver it had in it, but because of the one who would come there. Because the king of glory and the person of Jesus Christ would come to that temple and would give of himself on the cross outside of that temple and outside of those city walls. The branch is the one who reconciles. As it talks about uh, bringing peace, he's the one that brings peace to the people of God. And verse 13 goes on to say, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. We have what was unheard of in the Old Testament. The priesthood and the kingly line joined together. 
And you may think about those attempts when the king tried to, to take on the role of the priest, Saul, in sacrificing, and the king going in. Or the animosity that was between Saul and the priests at Adab and that sort of thing. It seemed like there was more anger and warfare than reconciliation between these two. But in this branch, they will be joined, the priestly and the kingly. And their differences will be done away with. And it's in this person called the branch that we have one who's both priest and king, the perfect priest and the perfect king. And so the mention here, the branch, points us to that one. It's looking forward to the Messiah. And that really brings us to our fourth point. The fulfillment of this prophecy is found in Jesus Christ. He is that one that's the branch. Jesus of Nazareth, who was from the line of David. Who rightly should have been king of Israel, although by that time it was in a low estate. Who was of the priesthood, as we'll sing in Psalm 110 of Melchizedek. A different priesthood, an eternal priesthood, as Hebrews tells us. And so we see one who is the eternal priest and the eternal king. And he's still that eternal priest because we're told that he ever lives to make intercession for us. So he's still fulfilling that role of priest And he's subduing all of his and our enemies under his feet right now. So he's that king. Bringing about his kingdom. His great, this is highlighted in verse 15. Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Not the physical temple. But the church is the dwelling place of God. A movement that is worldwide, that is symbolized by these three men coming from Babylon, but will be seen even more as we see men and women, boys and girls from all tribes and peoples and tongues and nations coming to the Messiah, coming to Jesus Christ. And so it's looking forward to a worldwide kingdom. And so the visions in Zechariah and in this passage are pointing to what is far beyond what happens in Zechariah's day, to what came true in Jesus Christ, that he's at the center of all this. And so as we read Zechariah, we need to see Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of this branch. He's that one who is king and priest. He 
He is at the center of all of scripture. And so as they think about application, Jesus Christ must be at the center of our thinking as well. I was watching the Ohio State-Michigan football game a number of years ago. It was uh, just a few months after Bo Schembechler, the longtime coach of Michigan, had died, and Woody Hayes, the coach at Ohio State, had died a few years earlier. And the announcer said something to the effect that how Schembechler and Hayes must be in heaven looking down and enjoying this game. And I thought, I don't know what Schembechler thought religiously or Hayes, but if they're in heaven, they're not thinking about a football game. They're focused on the Lamb. Is also lion. On earth, it's easy for us to get focused on wrong things. A football game, our, our sports, our career, even our family. Things that can be good. But our number one focus is to be on the branch. Is to be on Jesus Christ, what he means to us and what he wants us to be doing. And second, as you think about that crown, now being made of gold and silver, it would have been a, a pretty ornate crown in some ways, at least fancier than most. But there's a crown that's mentioned in the New Testament at the death of Christ, and that's the crown of thorns. The part of his sufferings and death. Part of his mission when he came to earth was to die on that cross. Of course, we celebrate the fact that he did not stay dead. But on the first day of the week, he was raised again, victorious over sin, over the evil one, over death itself. And each time we come on the first day of the week to worship, we should be remembering that death. The crown, not of gold and silver, but of thorns, that epitomizes the sacrificial work of Christ. As we'd come to Lord's Supper, we'd also remember that death for our sakes that brings peace Peace, most importantly, we all, with the Heavenly Father. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we uh, give you thanks for this uh, passage of Scripture, how hundreds of years uh, before Jesus Christ ever walked on the earth, he is pictured here as that branch, that one who's a, who's a high priest, but also who sits on the throne. And we give, give you thanks that Jesus Christ was the great uh, prophet, priest, and king who came into this world to bring peace to us. Thank you for that. Thank you that we can have new life and fellowship with you because of his work. And thank you that his kingdom is ever expanding, that you promised it. And so it cannot help but come true. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.